sound good this morning. You really do. Not that you don't sound good every week, but you know. This morning, we're, we are in part two of this series called Take It to the Bank, which if you're here last week, you remember that it's just a way of saying what you can count on, something that you can count on, something that you can put your trust in, a saying, a teaching, a word. And for these few weeks, what we want to look at are what are some of the, the really the foundational truths of, of being a Christian, of, of, of our faith that, that I believe that you can take to the bank, that you can just put, put your trust in. And, and we continue with, uh, with really looking at some of the, the teachings and, and experiences of Paul which we began with last week, later in Acts, actually. But if you remember, even though we were toward the end of, of the book or, or the, the account of Acts, the ancient manuscript of, of what happened in the early church, uh, Paul was recounting his first encounter with Jesus and the core of the message that Jesus gave him, which was to, to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. Well, we want to look at another of Paul's uh, encounters. This is at Mars Hill in Athens as he is proclaiming the Word of God. And so let's begin here with Acts chapter 17, uh, in the middle of the chapter, actually to the middle to the back. We begin at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, and Paul and them being Silas and Timothy who were coming to join him, uh, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, two very significant groups. And if you're a philosophy person, you may be familiar with the Epicureans and, and the Stoics. But they in the marketplace, he began to debate with them. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him into a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. We have a group like that. We call that Congress. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it was just too easy. I couldn't let it go. Paul then stood up. I know it's hard to bring it back now. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. For God who has made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. 
From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Friends and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, give us hearts to hear your word, to be open to your voice, and to be obedient to your call. In Christ we pray. Amen. I uh, was sitting this week in the office, uh, John and I, John Godfrey, and I share an office. If you've been across the street, you know that uh, space is at a premium. So when John was hired on staff, we didn't have... Um, anywhere to put him, so he and I uh, share an office, which is okay. It's a good thing. It's okay for me. He might not like it, but um, <laughs> but so we get in interesting conversations during the week, and we we had we were having a conversation this week, and um, just you know, as conversations kind of meander sometimes, it, it took us to a point where we started discussing um, or the topic of another kind of religious philosophical faith came up. And, uh, and I made a comment as we were talking. I said, you know, the, the, what they believe is just so weird. It's just so weird. And, and as I said that, and as the words kind of came out of my mouth, I, I just, I paused for a moment. And, you know, I thought, isn't that interesting? In fact, I even made a comment to John about it. I'm, isn't it interesting how religion can be very weird? It can be very, very strange. But... But it's always the other religion. It's always their religion. It's their faith. It's their way of thinking that is weird. It's never ours. I mean, I, I thought that, and I said, even as I said it, I said, gosh, their, their religion is so weird. And I thought, virgin birth, died on a cross, resurrected from the dead. Yeah, that's perfectly normal. But, but what they believe is a little, is a little weird. And, and I mean, I think that's, that's kind of a human tendency that we have. We look at those outside our realm of experience, uh, outside our, our worldview or our, our way of doing things, and we see the, the other way as weird or different where ours seems to be the norm. Uh, you know, we do this, we certainly do this in, in faith. Uh, we do this in life uh, in, in any number of ways. I have some, some friends who... Uh, their parenting style is very different than, than the way Tony and I raise our children. And we would never say to them, but we kind of think, gosh, the way they do it is kind of odd. It's kind of weird. But then they look at me and think, well, no, the way they do it is kind of weird. 
You know, it's always a matter of perspective. I, I loved when I would teach world religion courses at the, the community college. You know, you'd have a, a bunch of, of students really from a very similar kind of worldview. Not all were necessarily Christians, but, you know, American I wouldn't even just say kids because some were young and some were second career or coming back to school. But it was always fun when we'd study religions from other parts of the world to kind of get their reaction to some of the practices. My favorite to always share with them was when we talk about the Hindu faith. And there's a, an offshoot of Hinduism called um, Jainism. And there's a group called the, the Skyclad Jains, which is what we call them, the Digambaras. And um, they take a, a teaching of Hinduism, which is called ahimsa, ahimsa, which means to do no harm. And they take it to extremes. And their monks wear no clothing. They walk around completely naked, hence the term sky-clad Jains. They wouldn't say they're naked. They say they're clothed in the environment. Try, no, don't try that. But, um, <laughs> but that's what they'd say. But, but what they do is they walk around, and they, because they're so committed to doing no harm to any living thing, that they walk with a broom and they sweep in front of them. So every step they take, they don't risk stepping on a bug or a living thing. They strain their water so that no living thing, to the best of their knowledge, is in their water. And, and the reaction to that is the same reaction that you have right now. Wow, that's, that's weird. That's odd. That's out of the norm. That's strange. And, and that's, that's the way we react. And we do it with things that are very foreign. Sometimes we do it things in our own backyard. When I was living in Clearwater, Largo area, almost over a decade ago, some of you may remember, there was a, I don't know if it was a bank building. I don't remember what kind of building it was. Right on US 19. And um, it was glass. And it got a water stain or something on it. And it was in the, from, you remember this? It was some of you are not here. It was in the shape of, of the Virgin Mary. And it really was. I mean, it, it was pretty amazing to see. And they had vigils out there 24-7. Candles. Somebody bought the building so that they could constantly be out there. People would come from all over. Now, I thought it was kind of a cool thing, but, but I was like, it's a water stain. It, it, it seemed a little odd to me to, to, to be so uh, enamored with it that, that people would come from all over just to see what was a, I mean, again, very cool, but it was just a, you know, in my mind, it was, it was a coincidence. Now, yes, I can be a skeptic sometimes, okay? But, but my point is, I, I caught myself being somewhat dismissive. And, and here's the heart of it. At the heart of all of these religious traditions, all of these experiences, all of these ways that people seek to, to worship is a desire that is at the root of it all. And that is a desire to connect from the secular to the sacred, to connect from our ordinary to the divine, to experience the supernatural presence of God or whatever term that somebody may use for that. There's a desire to reach and to experience something beyond ourselves. And I think there is a part of that that is innate in human nature. I mean, that's what we do when we gather every Sunday. We, ex we seek to experience 
the presence of God, that which is beyond us, who is greater than us, but also seeks to, to be within us. And so it's important for us to kind of start there as we start to understand what is so unique about our call in Christ and what it means to be a Christian is to start with this universal pursuit and, and this universal tendency to dismiss others outside ourselves because that's what Paul bumps up against. That takes us to, the, to this experience that, that Paul accounts or, or recounts in, in Acts because Paul has gone into what we call the Gentile world. He's gone to to Athens. He's in the Greek and Roman culture of the day. He's really, while there are Jews around, he's outside the, the Jewish world. And within the Jewish community, proclaiming Christ meant there were connection points. Not everybody agreed, but you know, Jesus was a fulfillment of the prophecy of the Jewish prophets. Jesus was still within the monotheistic one God worldview, was the, the son of the one true God. So there was connection points. But when Paul goes into Athens and he encounters Roman and Greek culture, he encounters a very different worldview. He encounters a worldview of a people that believe in many gods. We remember our Roman uh, or Greek mythology. You know, that, that they had a God for everything. And his challenge is to take this very different understanding and to proclaim the message of Jesus, which is so foreign and so different. And I think it is fascinating for us to understand what Paul does because it speaks to the heart of, of who we are. And, and what I mean by this is Paul studies their culture. In those days, he, he doesn't just come in with a bullhorn, if you will, and begin to tell everybody how wrong they are. He begins to pay attention to what they believe in, and he begins to engage in conversation and in dialogue with the Epicureans and the Stoic. The Epicureans were a school of thought that, that was all about pleasure. You seek pleasure. And the Stoics were the deep thinkers and the philosophers. And, and he begins to engage them and he begins to, to proclaim this message of Christ. And, th and they, they hear him and they really kind of dismiss him. If you remember in the, the verse it said that, that they thought of him a babbler. But they invite him into the Areopagus, which is a place where teachers were examined to decide whether or not that they could have a, a public voice, whether they could go into the foreign marketplace or into the marketplace and they could teach. And so they invite kind of Paul in almost for a hearing. Tell us, tell us what, what is this? And Paul does a very fascinating thing. Rather than beginning first to tell them what he wants them to know, he begins with where they are. He begins with something that will connect for them. And what I mean is this. He had seen all these shrines and all these temples and all these statues to the many gods of the Greek and, and Roman world. And he encountered one that was to the unknown God. Now, you need to understand what that is. That is the just-in-case God. That, that's, that's, what, that's the just-in-case God. Because what they had done is, is they had 
they had, well, you know what? We're capable of love. Human beings, we, we can love, so there must be a God of love. We're capable of war, so there must be a God of war. We are dependent upon agriculture, and there must be a God of, of that, and their day and night. You know, they, they had a God for everything because they were trying to cover all the bases. But what happened is there was always this little bit of concern. What if we miss something? What if there's something out there we kind of glanced over? So we better cover our base. And so they create the shrine to the unknown God, which is basically saying, if there's a God out there we forgot, and we're really sorry, this is for you. <laughs> so it's a just-in-case God. Now, lest we are overly critical, I think there's a lot of American spirituality that operates under the same premise. It's just in faith, just in case worship. People that, that come to church every once in a while, just in case. And I'm not, please, don't, don't hear me. I'm, I'm not throwing stones. But, but there are a lot of people that, that want to bring their kids to church and will come. Maybe you're there. Maybe you're here. Look, just in case. I'm not sure what I believe, but just in case this is it, I better be here. And, and so that's not un known to us and that, that kind of thinking. And so Paul recognizes that. And so in the text, that is where his connection point becomes. And he says to them, I notice you are very religious. They're not very certain, but they're very religious. And he, in many ways, commends them for this. I think it's important to notice. Paul doesn't come in, like I said, with a bullhorn or with a, um, you know, with a hammer just to knock them down. He says, I notice you are religious. I notice that you are searching, that you are trying to understand the gods and the way the divine works, and you have this shrine to the unknown God. And this is where it's beautiful pivot. He says to them, what you have not known, let me now make known to you. What you have been searching for, let me now proclaim. And he uses that as a connection point to tell them about the core of the Christian faith. And it's Jesus. I mean, it sounds so simple. It sounds so obvious. But yet, that's the heart. What Paul says is, I want to tell you about that thing which you have been looking for. I want to tell you about that truth which has been hidden from you. That you have not seen. And it's not a condemnation. It's a connection. I want to tell you something that is bigger than anything you can imagine. And he says, you know, your, your God's too small. You know, you've contained your gods in these temples and you believe you serve them and you believe they are dependent upon you. You've got it wrong. You, you've missed it. And he says, it's time for you to repent. Now, that's an interesting statement because we often think of repent as change our behavior. Stop doing something that we had previously been doing. And that's part of what repent means. But repent also means change your thinking. And Paul says, it's time for you to change your thinking. This thing that you have been groping for, this thing you have been looking for, this desire you have to connect and to reach into the sacred. Well, the God who occupies the sacred spaces has reached for you. 
And that is the core of the message of Christ. It is the message that the God who we all seek, the divine that we, we hunger for, that we, and Paul says, kind of grope around in the dark trying to find, that God has decided not to wait for us to find him, but he has chosen to come find us. And that finding happens in the person of Jesus. The foundation of our faith, the core, is Jesus. Paul talked last week about the proclaiming of the forgiveness of sins. Well, how do we know? How do we understand the forgiveness of sins? Jesus. Jesus is the heart of what we believe. And, and again, it sounds simplistic and it sounds simple, but it is so profound. We have to hold on to that. If you want to come to me and we wanted to talk about what it means to be a Christian, this is where we start. Jesus. Every time. Now, we may not always agree on what that means, but that's where we're going to start. What's it look like to be a Christian? What's it mean to be a Christian? What do Christians believe, act, behave? Jesus, the cornerstone of our faith. We are called to reflect Christ. And Paul says to the Romans and to the Greeks, and God says to us, what it means at the core of Christianity is Jesus is the one who God has sent to reveal who he is. You know, in the 18th century, there was a um, humanist by the name of Ludwig Feuerbach. And Feuerbach had a critique of religion. He was not a Christian, did not believe. And he said, basically, and I'm going to simplify this, religion and Christianity in our context is just a projection of all the best stuff about humanity. We say we love, so God is perfect love. We say uh, we have the capability to forgive, so God is perfect forgiveness. And he said, all we're doing is we're just projecting ourselves. We're reaching and trying to create this image of God. In the 19th century, I'm sorry, Feuerbach was in the 19th century. In the 20th century, a German theologian came along by the name of Karl Barth. Karl Barth looked at Feuerbach and said, you know what, he's right. That's what religion does. Religion is just trying to figure God out. But Christianity is different because in Christ, God has come to us. In Christ, we don't say, what do we think God is like? We look at Jesus and God says, this is who I am. This is who I am. It begins and it ends with Jesus. So we say that we have hope. Well, why do we have hope? Because Jesus promises us to be with us. Jesus promises to prepare a place for us. Jesus promises that we'll never be alone. That's why we have hope. Well, we have forgiveness. Why do we believe in forgiveness? Because Jesus says, Jesus exemplifies that on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus is at the heart of who we are. And I say very honestly, if it doesn't look like Jesus, it doesn't look like God. And so when we peel the layers of the traditions and the experiences and the things that may seem odd or different, what we get in Christ is at the heart of Jesus. And what Paul says is this is what, to the Romans and the Greeks, this is what you've been looking for. It's not philosophical. It's not abstract. It's concrete. It's located in the man who, remember in Paul's time, he would say to them that about 40 years ago, 30 years ago, walked this earth. It's not... It's not a concept. It's located in time and place. And that time and place is the person of Jesus. And so for us, our faith is on the foundation of Christ. Who we are is a reflection of who Jesus is. And so 
you know, there's a lot of stuff that we do to try to connect with that. There's a lot of stuff, but we remember this. We don't reach to God. In Christ, God reaches to us. And we decide whether we're going to put our trust there. It's interesting at the end of Acts, chapter 17, it says some believed, some didn't. Some believed and some didn't. We're given that same invitation. We're given that same offering, which is here's Christ. Here's who I am. The answer to your question, the answer to your search is Christ. But the choice is ours, whether we receive or we walk away. And we keep looking. But it's always, always going to come back to Jesus. I pray for each of us that we have received what Paul offered to the Greeks and the Romans, what God offered through Paul to the Greeks, and that is Christ, an intimate, real relationship with the one who is the reason for our hope and our promise and our peace. The search is always the same, but the answer also never changes, and that's Christ. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, that we would receive Christ, that at the heart of our search, the heart of our questions, the heart of our desire to know what it means to be like you that we'd see, it means that we are like Jesus. And then in Christ, you've shown us who you are. And that's why we have hope, because of the words he speaks and the promise he gives, that we'd receive it, that we'd believe it, and that we would live it. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.